0: Hi guys. My name is James Horton. I don't know if you guys know who I am or not. You might, have, you might have seen me on milk cartons or inside of post office. That's right. So, and you know, to kind of piggyback off of what Bob was just saying, you know, truth, what did Pontius Pilate ask Jesus? What is truth, right? And And, you know, we know that Truth is here, right? That we have the very mind of Christ, and how effectual that God's word is when we we use it the way that it's intended. You know, instead of browbeating somebody, we're actually showing them the way, the truth, and the life. So, um, so my whole thing here, guys, is I'm going to be teaching out of Ephesians chapter six, and uh, all about the armor of God. All right. And, uh, so let's just do this. I I know we've already prayed, but Lord, I love you so much. I thank you for the opportunity to just break open your word and to be a part of, uh, of your plan. Lord, you, uh, you know so much more than I do where I'm at and where I'm going. So Lord, I just, I fall on my knees in front of your cross and I just, uh, I beg of you to forgive me of those things that I know I shouldn't do and give me the strength to do the things that I know that I should. Lord, um, I just ask you to please bless this morning. Let it be profitable for anybody that would hear. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so so you and I are in a battle, right? I don't know if you guys knew that or not. We are presently engaged in warfare. We were just talking about that. Doug Pearson mentioned it when he was here, and he preached, uh, you know, what, a couple months ago. Brian Clark even mentioned it last week when he was here, and it's something that Brian's been going through for the last, few months in Exodus. It's it's the war, right? So are we equipped, right? Are we prepared or are we sitting ducks? That's, I guess, the question we need to ask ourselves. Our present predicament shows our problems are not financial. Any businessman will tell you that cash flow is a symptom and not a cause. It is an indicator of a more fundamental problem Our deficiency is not militarily, despite how bad they're trying to make it Right, in the pursuit of political correctness. America is in a moral free fall, and we are all victims of spiritual warfare, every one of us. We have the media masking the truth. We have the courts perverting justice. We have anger replacing patriotism. We have schools deliberately dumbing down our youth. We have replaced traditional values and heritage with multiple multiculturalism, revisionism, and value relativism. Our government is now the purveyor, the key purveyor, of immorality. And should we be surprised? It shouldn't surprise us at all. Are we surprised? I'm not. Right? They've always loved crises. Right? Governments have always loved crises. They provide a rationale for increasing budgets and bureaucracies and subjugating a populace. Um, into submission. In our country we learned long ago that social crises serve as well as a military crisis would and immorality creates social crisis so that, again, is it any surprise that the government have have an enormous incentive to promote immorality and I'm going to suggest to you and again, I didn't know how to title the lesson either, prepare for battle or our desperate warfare, you can take your pick, that's you know, that's where we're at. but uh, So I'm going to suggest to you that you and I are living in what I would call the age of deceit. Our schools inculcate the myth of evolution to our youth and that their existence is a result of some cosmic accident and we wonder why they have no sense of destiny or self-esteem. Our science promotes this, this specific evolutionary issue despite the facts that they have before them that have proven that is absolutely not the case, even out of Darwin's own mouth our government continues to disseminate disinformation to promote its purpose of socialism, and it would seem that our investigative institutions have pursued the path of cover-ups and obfuscation rather than the pursuit of truth and justice. The question is, who is the god of this world? Satan, right? That's who the god of this world is, right? And what's his primary weapon? Deceit and lies, right? That's, that's his primary weapon. So, we are engaged in the in spiritual warfare going on right this very moment for our families, for our country, and how do you deal with, with this, you know, what can you do, um, and we've all been equipped to go into battle, every one of us have been equipped to go into battle, and, and we were born on enemy soil, so we have already been entered into this battle, whether you're on the side of Christ or on the side of the enemy, you're in the battle, right, so... Let's go on to Ephesians chapter 6 verse, uh, verse 10. Let's start here. <clears throat> and, and we'll kind of jump around, but I just want to kind of show you some of the things here. And it says, Paul is writing here, it says in verse 10, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. So a little, let's look at that just a little bit closer. It is in the present tense as to say that to be continually strong, right? It's not a once and for all thing, it's a continual thing. It's in a passive voice, meaning that you are the subject and you receive the action. And it is an imperative mood, which is a command. In common day language, we would say, allow yourself to be continually strong in the Lord and be strengthened by his might. That's, in essence, how we would probably say what Paul in Old English said. right? So verse 11, "...put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to withstand the wiles of the devil." right? We are responsible for putting on God's armor, not our own. All right. The Greek word that is used to describe this is panoplyon, where we get our word panoply. All right. So panoply is is everything. There is nothing that you are lacking. If you have a panoply of books to choose from or a panoply of food with which to eat, you don't lack anything, right? You have everything there. It's, it's a panoply is, is the, the Greek word for it. And it literally means you have everything you need. Not part of the armor, not just a piece of it, but all of it. And how can we stand without being in his whole armor? And Paul constantly repeats this throughout this passage. Be completely armed amazing how most of us pick and choose the parts and the pieces that we want to wear as we walk. Before you take your next step, you need to stop and realize that you are already on enemy territory and we need to have special tools and weapons. Right? We need to. In our own strength, we are no match for our enemy. I don't care how smart you are, he is smarter. If we go down the list of possibilities, we realize that we are outclassed in every measure. We need God's protection, right? And... Uh, we need that, in fact, to be able to stand against the schisms and all the methods of the enemy. We need that armor paul 's detailed description of the armor may stem from him being chained to a Roman soldier while awaiting trial. We can read that in acts twenty eight sixteen and twenty and the idioms that Paul is using leads most to think leads most people to think this right that that be the case. Most people think that the chains were to keep Paul from escaping, but I honestly think that that was to keep the soldier from escaping Paul. Could you imagine being chained to Paul for a whole shift as a Roman centurion, (laughs) listening to this guy, right? And then going home and saying, oh, God, honey, I was chained to Paul today. You know, it's just, it it was crazy. He told me all this stuff, and I just, I, I keep thinking about it. But what's cool, but if you know anything about Paul, his viewpoint was that those chains were meant to keep the soldier from escaping. Can you imagine being chained to Paul for a whole shift But we can read in Philippians 4 verses 21 and 22 that many of those soldiers, we can draw from the inference in that, in that Philippians passage, that many of them got saved. And not just that, Brian Clark mentions the whole house is what he had said in Ephesians. Their whole household got saved. So it, it, the Roman soldiers that were chained to Paul were exposed to a preacher that was wanting to save their soul. And so he would, he would preach the gospel. Right? So, the beauty of uh, the study of God's Word is you get the Old Testament, it is in the New Testament revealed, and the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. Alright? So, let's do this, guys. Turn to Isaiah 59. I think I got these tabbed in my Bible. I don't have the cheater Bible with a little, you know, book thing, so I don't know my. As sad as this is to say, I don't know the whole thing. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. I wish I did. I wish I was smart enough to have all that in my brain. All 66 books. Um, I'm just not like that. Okay, but anyways. So in, a few, in, uh, in uh, Isaiah 59, uh, verses 16, and I want to say probably 17. Right? This is just a quick peek, uh, just a, a, a quick peek of, of how the language of the day, right? Paul was writing to Jews, he was a Jew, about a Jewish Messiah. They didn't have the two thousand years of history after Christ's suffering on the cross to be able to to look and contrast and compare. Right? They had what they knew, what they'd been taught through the thousands of years prior to to what was going on. So so this was written hundreds of years before Ephesians was written, and it also shows the consistency of the Holy Spirit and the way that Paul uses these idioms uh, it, it's not for our or out of his convenience since he was trapped to a soldier and and we could see that there was a soldier right there with him. But they seem to carry more meaning and weight than that with the reader of the day, right? The Hebrew depth. He was he was he studied at the feet of Gamaliel. He was the, a, a Jew of the Jews. He was what did he I mean he was everything. Paul was the man, right? So if we read this here we kind of get just a quick peek. So uh Isaiah fifty nine sixteen. Choo 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 am I in the right spot? I might write something down wrong here. Sixteen Okay, yeah. So verse sixteen. And he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore his arm brought forth salvation unto him and his righteousness it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and the helmet of salvation upon his head and he put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with his zeal as a cloak. And that just kind of gives you an idea of this, this armor that we, that we're reading about in Ephesians. It's been part of the Jewish history forever. So when Paul's talking about in Ephesians the armor of God, the, the Jew is going to know he's talking about this type of stuff, the breastplate that the the person would put on in the Old Testament, right? <clears throat> So it, it's, it, it's just, there's 66 books with 40 authors, and just like Bob was saying, every jot, every space, every letter that's in this is God-breathed, and it is from outside of our time domain. So we won't ever be able to really understand it until we get there. Mm-hmm. Until He explains it to us. So, and, and if you guys wanted to turn back to Ephesians, that's just a little picture, Ephesians chapter 6, right? Verse 12, this is our strategic intelligence report. If we are in a battle, the first thing we need to know is what we are up against. So someone read verse 12 for me. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And if we are a student of the Bible and the New Testament you should know that these principalities and powers are terms in the Greek that refer to ranks of angels. They are not just some theological abstraction, right? They, they, they literally are beings. They're actual beings. And they are mentioned many times, and you should track those down on your own. It's great stuff. It's almost like a spiritual mafia. You know, you, you want to talk about organized crime. You want to talk about some big stuff. Satan and his minions, man, they, they got it down. You think anybody here on earth is bad, they learned it from him. And he is the king of that, right? So, spiritual warfare is not just contending against godless philosophers or crafty gurus or Christ-denying cultists or neo-pagan rulers, but against a highly organized army of demonic forces and battalions of fallen angels. Most churches are comfortable talking about the gentle Jesus, the teacher, the healer, but when you start to talk about the other side of it all, it becomes spooky and mystical, almost medieval, right? And you could look to 2 Corinthians 10, uh, 3 and 4 for some background on that. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh, right? For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through the pulling down of strongholds. We think that the only physical realm, we only think that the physical realm, um, and not about the the spiritual side of it all, right? Because what I can see and what I can touch, what I can taste, what I can handle, that's what I I give import to. That's what I think, that's what most people think is real, right? But if you know anything about particle physics or anything like that, you know that, this and this is all made up of atoms, right? And, and only one part in a million of that atom is solid. So in all actuality, this is just an electrical simulation of what the atoms and everything that are holding this all together, you know, I sit in that chair because I think it's strong enough to hold me. I, I have faith that it will. I don't know that it will, right? Okay, so... Um, We tend to think only of the physical realm and not about the spiritual side. But you, again, if you know the scripture, you know that our physical world is really the result of unseen spiritual battles. Dimensions, we only know of four, right? Breadth, length, width, height. That's what, that's what the word says, right? But modern day physics has indicated that we probably live in about ten. Right, not not four. We we you know we take a taste, smell, sight, sound, all those things. But again, getting way off topic. So this is not all there is, right? This physical realm is not all there is. So if somebody wants to turn to Ephesians three eighteen, right, and just read that. May be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height. Alright. So, it's amazing how contemporary the Bible is. Um, because, again, just as of last week, there were string theory physicists that have come out and have indicated that there might even be 12 separate areas that we exist in. Um, it's just, it's crazy to think, right? So, let's go to. 2 Kings chapter 6. <clears throat> Let's go there. Just to kind of get, I want you guys to kind of get a picture. 2 Kings where? Chapter, uh, 2 Kings chapter 6 verses 8 through 23. Okay. So, <laughs> not much has changed, right? Syria, in the days of Elijah, not much has changed at all. And here is Elisha, who would convey to the king. Let's read the passage first. Then the king of Syria warred against Israel and took counsel with his servants, saying, In such and such a place shall I build my camp. And this is Second Kings verse uh, chapter six, verse eight. And verse 9. And the man of God sent unto the king of Israel saying, Beware that they'll pass not such a place, for thither the Syrians are come down. And the king of Israel sent to the place which the man of God told him and warned him of and saved himself there, not once, not twice, obviously many times, right? To the point, to the point where the king of Syria honestly thinks he has a mole, right? The king of Syria would make a plan, and Elijah would always be tipped off about his plan. The king of Israel would go to where Elijah told, uh, or excuse me, then the king of Israel would go to where Elijah was told that he was going to be, and Elijah would save himself again—not once, not twice, but it happened multiple times to the point to where the king of Syria was like, "Who is the mole?" And it says, "Who is for Israel?" Later on in this passage, right? He's wanting to know. He's thinking, "There's no way." Every time I go to meet this guy, he's never there. He, who's talking to this? Who who's who's blasting this out there? Who's who's on the side of Israel? All right? And the first this is obviously the first biblical record of a phone tap because what did what did he say? The, the, his servant said, uh, "Who is the mole who is for Israel?" in verse 12, but his servant said, "None, my lord, O king, but Elisha the prophet that is in Israel telleth the king of Israel the words that thou speakest in thy bedchamber." Right, this is the first biblical record, like I said, of a phone tap. Of course, I'm joking, but this the spirit of the thing here. You kind of get the feel for it. Somehow, Elijah knows by the spirit of God the thoughts of the enemy and is warned by the man of God that the you know to the king of Israel what was happening. Um, but let's get back to it here, verses 13 and 14. And he said, "Go and spy where he is, that I may send and fetch him." And it was told to the king of Syria, "Him, behold, he is in Dothan." Therefore, sent he thither horses and chariots and a great host, and they came by night and compassed the city about. Okay, so Elijah, obviously in verse uh, fifteen, he had a manservant, and uh, his his servant got up early to prepare the day, to start the day off, to get things. And when he got up to the to the precipice, he looked out and he was terrified because he saw that the city was encompassed by hostile combatants. And the servant said, "Alas, master." What shall we do? Because in verse 16, he's in a panic. He says, and he answered, fear not. This is what Elijah is saying to his manservant. For they that are with us are more than they that be with them. But you can almost hear it in his voice in the text. They're right there, boss. I can see them. I can hear them. They're, they're right there. What do you mean? There's nobody else out there. Right? He, he's trying to trying to wrap his head around it. And you could almost sense when Elijah starts to pray you know, there'll be more with us than with them. And I imagine that the servant was like, like I said, nice platitude, but they're right there. You know, I can hear him. So in verse 17, you can almost hear Elisha's annoyance. He says, and Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots and fire round about Elisha, Right. The young man's eyes were opened, and he saw what? That they were surrounded by the muscle of the region, which was Syria, who was surrounded by God's forces. He sees what we would call the natural, right? The The, the servant sees what he thinks is the natural world. But Elijah has to get God to open up his eyes to show him the spiritual side of it. And that's exactly what Ephesians 6 is kind of trying to deal with, right? This is just one example of the unseen realm. You can go to Daniel chapter 10, and you can, you know, if you wanted to, but I'll just kind of read this for time's sake. Daniel chapter 10, um, and we all know the story. He started to pray. He's fasting. The angel was dispatched, right? But for 21 days, he had to fight it he, he took him a while to get there. So Daniel started in verse 12. Daniel, uh, 21 days ago, he started this fasting and prayer request. And the angel was dispatched then, but what took him so long? And if you look in verses 13 and 14, it was the prince of Persia. Not the literal prince, but we are talking of, you know, uh, like an earthly ruler or somebody that's a, a real man. But we're obviously talking about the spiritual power behind that Persian empire. Right? And the adverse spiritual being that's there with it. Now if you were if we were in Daniel chapter ten, you could go into skip night or down to verse nineteen. And notice what Daniel does, and Paul draws from this event written by Daniel using the same Hebrew word that translates to the Greek descriptive <coughs> imperative word as Paul did in Ephesians chapter six when he tells us to be strong right? Be strong is a command. It is not an automatic. It is something that you need. And Daniel had to do it in the presence of this angel. But Daniel was like, you know, I am undone. I'm dead. And and the angel had to encourage him, right? The angel had to encourage him. So, you know the rest of the story. The angel had to go and fight his way out. It's interesting to note, though, that Gabriel and Michael are, are other than Lucifer, are the two named angels in the Bible, Anyone, well, Gabriel is the other one. Michael's always on, uh, well, is always on a mission to enunciate the Messiah in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And every time Michael is mentioned, it's always in a, as a military commander. The text suggests that there is demonic powers behind the worldly kingdoms, Persia, Greece, Rome in two parts, and so on. Is there a Prince of America? I'd be willing to say yeah. I'd be willing to say absolutely 100% there's a Prince of America. And these are just two of the places that we get kind of a glimpse into the spiritual realm that Paul's talking about that we're fighting against, right? Because we're not fighting against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places, right? So back to Ephesians chapter 6. Verse 13. Whereon take unto you the whole armor of God that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. And here again, we see the whole armor. If you're going to play this game, you better be ready because the enemy will attack any and all the weaknesses in your armor. We need to be able to, as Paul says, withstand or stand against. He will list the specific pieces of armor, but first off, you have to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Then you are... Uh, more involved in the battle if you have not accepted Jesus Christ as your savior right because you 're already involved satan if you 're one of his, and why would i bother i 'm not even going to but if you're an, if you 're posing a threat okay that's that 's an issue to him right so the most surprising areas that we are vulnerable in right without Jesus, we are pawns powerless to stand against the enemy right. And the most surprising area that we are vulnerable in, and, and obviously in this room it might not be the, but it's our marriage, right? Our marriages. That's the, the one main thing you will hear if you're around those that are in the ministry, you talk about, uh, missionaries, you know, um, which, by the way, if you are saved, you are, you have a, a mission, okay? Your mission is to spread the gospel. So if you are saved, you have a ministry. Right, whether we're a salaried employee or, uh, or not, that's that's not the issue. It, but if your marriage is solid, then Satan has a tough time getting to you. So make sure your marriage is strong. Make sure your marriage stays strong. Right. So in verse fourteen, the first of two elements, stand therefore having your loins girt about with truth. And again, what did I say? Pontius Pilate asked Jesus, "What is truth?" You know, um, and, and Jesus kind of. <sighs> Laid it out through his life, not necessarily through words, but he says, uh, "Gird about with truth and having the breastplate." There it is the breastplate again of righteousness that we read about in Isaiah fifty-nine, right? So, John eighteen thirty-eight obviously is where Pilate says, "What is truth?" Few is, uh, few people, few of us, I doubt have probably raised that question ourselves. Truth is one of the most precious treasures to be coveted. Truth is the key to success, fulfillment, victory, or achieving any worthwhile goal, and should be our greatest challenge in any of our endeavors. It should be to find truth, to seek truth, to tell truth, to be truth, right? We live in a time that has ushered in astonishing achievements in technology, but conversely, it has also brought in unbelievable darkness, with new wars, new weapons, including, you know, up through the end of the 20th century, up to right now, has been the bloodiest, most revolutionary, most unpredictable time in history, but the most fearful aspect is the abandonment of truth, and in a cultural war, the first casualty is always truth. Truth is always what has to be attacked, right? So the first, most institutions deny that truth exists. It's all relative. That's what our co- our colleges are teaching that that there is no there is no moral truth. That it's all it's all relative, right? And you can see obviously that in a cultural war, the first casualty is truth. Determining truth should be paramount in our lives. It should be. It is said that what a man believes today, he will put in practice tomorrow. And to believe the wrong model of history or the wrong view of dispensations or how uh, God is rightly dividing uh, leads us to enormous critical failures, great tragedies, devastating consequences. Yet the correct true view of God and man and, and history and the dis- dispensations are the key to sanity, survival, and the fulfillment for each of us. Most of the truths we have today, and we have held for a long time, need to be re-examined. And the shock is that most of the truths of today, if you really examine them, prove to be false, and deliberately so. Only by renewing our minds, by the washing of the water of the Word, can we challenge the lies that we encounter daily. We are to study, to show ourselves approved, and to, God's, to be God's ready workmen, who need not be ashamed. Verse 14. Gird about your loins with truth. All the pieces of armor, the weapons that the soldier donned, were all held together by this belt, right? The belt is what holds the whole armor on. And the Roman belt was about four to six inches wide, and it harnessed all the tools. You see, the truth is the binding thing here. It gives the soldier freedom of movement, just as truth gives us us freedom with others and with God. All of this has to be prepared before the battle. You can't uh, go trying to pull your pants up or adjusting your belt in the middle of a fight. You, You will not win, right? You are already distracted because your armor is not there. The ultimate truth is the fulfillment of his promise. He made to Adam and Eve in the garden, and that was that of a redeemer. God declares this in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man come to the Father but by me. It's pretty straightforward, unlike the God of Islam or other gods, who's pernicious and capricious and is always changing. And our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There is no, there is no deviation in him, Right. The best definition I found for truth is when the word and deed become one. And when did that happen? When Christ came to earth, right? That's what happened. I can think of only one example we have of that, and that is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I can't close this point out without going to Psalms 51.6. God desires truth where? In our inward parts, right? In our hearts. That's where he desires it. And... Uh, who is the most dangerous and uh, pernicious source of lies? It's our enemy, and so we've got to guide, guard our hearts. Right. The second element, the breastplate of righteousness. Our most important stewardship is the heart. The breastplate covers the heart. It secures the vitals. This alludes to the life we live, or that we live. Uh, this alludes to the life we live. That it. So, if we look in Romans six thirteen uh 14 uh, 6 13 14 through 17 uh six, excuse me Romans 6 13 through 17 and the earlier reference obviously in Isaiah 59 you talk about the integrity and the uprightness in our personal lives that's what it's really dealing with that's you know Psalm 7 David speaks of this one of the biggest problems we have in the world today is a lack of integrity in our marriages in our business in our relationships it's everywhere and what's sad is is even here in the church that's what's, that's what's probably the biggest detractor. But we must also see that the righteousness that protects me is not mine. It is Christ's. And if you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, uh, and all of 1 Thessalonians, His imputed righteousness makes our breastplate impervious to the attacks of the enemy. Verse 15, feet that are shod with the preparation. It's kind of an odd saying here. It's not feet that are shod... To take the gospel, right? It's feet that are shod with the preparation of the gospel. Soldiers used to have what they had called greaves, right? They would they would protect the legs from gall traps, from sticks, from obstructions. Footwear is important, right? So what Paul's saying is, hey, you need a new pair of shoes. Not shod with the gospel of peace here, right? It's shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And we need to prepare for our invasion of enemy territory. It involves training. The feet I came across a couple of times, I was looking, it came in Isaiah 52, 7, Romans 10, 15. And I can't help but remember when Stephanie Wesco was here. And the thing that she had said was that as she was looking at her dead husband in the hospital and she was kissing his feet, you know, because she brought up that feet prepared to show the gospel, right? So if anybody out there, are missionaries, but especially somebody like Mr. Wesco, he probably knew that at any time it could happen. And just last week I was listening to congressional testimony, and lo and behold, this person, this young lady, I don't know who she was, what she was against people like us, but she brought up the Wescos. Exactly. Totally blew my mind. I was like, and she's from Indiana. And she was talking about the West Coast brother, Dan's brother, I think was his name. Um... He's a representative in the House uh, for the state of Illinois. And so anyways, their name came up at a congressional testimony, and I was like, wow. you know." But when Stephanie came and ministered to us, she was grieving at the loss of her husband who was martyred while he was spreading the gospel of peace to the field. His feet were shod with preparation, to be sure. He counted the cost, and he knew it was always possible, I would bet. Are we prepared to proclaim the gospel of peace to that level? I mean... We're on a street corner. Somebody might not like what you're saying. Just like that dude in Utah that got shot in the head. A street preacher. You know, somebody came up. He was trying to preach the gospel and that's it. So, at any time, right, we know. And where do I need to stop? We'll give you another five. Okay. Um, verse 16, the shield of faith. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. The shield of faith... It is the only maneuverable part of the armor, right? It protects the other parts of the armor. And when a soldier would go back to the barracks, if there were any holes in his shield, he plugged them up. You had to do this before the battle. Diligence is key in maintaining a proper shield. You examine it after each engagement and you repair any damage. What about your faith? If you have doubts, if you have problems about your biblical views, the time to address that is right now before you get into battle. If you have questions about evolution, if you have questions about salvation, settle those things now, right? Because that shield is what's going to protect you from the fiery darts that the enemy is sending your way. So you better check your shield. Show up your doubts. Plug up the holes, whether they be about salvation or creation. If there's any area you lack, you seek counsel, especially of God. You grab a concordance or whatever other helps helps you can seek out uh, and get them. Find a member of the body. Work those things out now. The shield also is a piece of armor that could be used in combination, right? Other believers. So our shields together, the Romans used to have what was called a tortoise formation where they would have 28 guys and they would all have their shields up and it, they would be able to move forward and none of them would be exposed because you had shields covering you on the side, you had shields covering you from the top, you had shields covering you from behind. So that tortoise formation, although you can look it up, that's, that's pretty much how we need to do. We need to make sure that we are in concert with each other. So that I'm not working against Bob or Mark or my wife's working with me, not against me and, and so on. Right? So it took 26 soldiers, six in front and three rows of seven each and it was like a walking tank, right? We should be as a body encouraging one another in the faith. And I can't leave this subject without pointing out that uh, this is not talking about some blind faith here. It is speaking about trusting the Word of God, our shield of faith. Faith is, faith is based on knowledge of His Word, not something that we hope for or that we feel. Right? The helmet of salvation in verse 17 says, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Helmet of salvation, having a helmet obviously protected the head, and it gives a sense of security and assurance The believer knows ultimate victory is sure and certain. I've read the end of the book. I know how it ends. I'm on the winning team. One of the most important aspects of our defense against Satan's attacks is our firm faith in eternal security. We are sealed and guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. So we trust in the Scriptures. That's what we trust in, right? The sword of the Spirit which is the word of God, is the last thing mentioned. The Romans created a sword called the machira. It was a short 24-inch, two-edged sword that was meant for close quarter combat. Far different than the Alexander and the great marching flanks with long spears, it required special training to be used by someone, and they had extensive practice. Used right, it guaranteed a victory. Matthew 4, 1, 11, Jesus used his sword here. And each temptation was met with the word of God. Read the word daily, get fed, washed, shore up your armor. Other than that, guys, I think that's it. I got more, but I think we're. Oh, good. Okay. Um, well, I know one thing, you gotta get you teaching more often, brother. You got, you had a lot packed in there. Uh, that, that was, was good. good. I hope I got some handles on it, but.